It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there, but how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with the insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. Hey guys, real quick before we jump into the show, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds to get done and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for being awesome guys. All right, let's get into the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, Ryan Gibson. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not yet familiar with Ryan, he is the president, chief investment officer, and co-founder of Spartan Investment Group. He has organized over $30 million of private equity equity for Spartan's projects, where he's responsible for investor relations and capital raising. Ryan, my man, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely pumped to have you on, man. Super excited to dive into self-storage today. We don't talk about it enough on the show, so excited to get into nuts and bolts. But before we do, we like to hear more about you, the guest. So tell us more about your background, your story, and how you got into the self-storage business. Yeah, so I actually have a background as an airline pilot and been a pilot for over uh, 20 years now, which is kind of wild. Started uh, right around 9-11 and uh, got all my certificates, ended up working for the majors for a bit. And then pivoted into self, really a self-storage and commercial. And that started when I met my uh, neighbor in Washington, DC, we decided to start a, a commercial real estate development business. And we've uh, built everything from condos and houses to uh, now self-storage, become one of the 40th uh, largest operators and owners of self-storage in the United States. And just really excited to be in the asset class and uh, really excited um, that we found syndication to help us uh, bring on new investors and uh, and build our portfolio and really kind of share in the wealth uh, along our journey into becoming um, you know who we are today. So yeah, and you know obviously I'm very familiar with you guys. Spartan is fantastic. We love you guys. And uh, so I, I do want to back up a little bit. So you found your partner um, and then you kind of dabbled with some stuff, right? Uh, what was it that really kind of turned you to to solely focus on self storage? Uh, how it did in recessions. So it's great. Like right now, um, you know, we're still seeing like rising rents, increasing NOI, very good occupancy. Right now we're in a, you know, it's October right now. So we're, we're seeing some seasonality and some move outs, but that's always typical. We're seeing overall kind of net positive uh, rentals right now. And even with the pending recession and consumer spending, maybe getting cut back a little bit in inflationary times. Um, but really we look back at the performance of self-storage over the past four downturns in GDP or recessions. And self-storage occupancy has only gone up. It's interesting from 2012 to 2020, there was more self-storage built than ever before in the history of its time for the last 40 years. And what's interesting is that we saw average occupancies go up almost 10% during that time frame. So more was being built and more occupancy than ever uh, coming out of the last recession. And then during COVID, we saw self-storage absolutely just completely take off and do even better than it's done in, in years past. And so we got excited initially just because of how well it did during recessionary times. And, you know, Scott, uh, my business partner, my neighbor, um, he was in the military and obviously, uh, you know, very risk 
uh, adverse and being, me being an airline pilot, um, same thing, you know, if we do bad things and, and make mistakes, you know, people can, can die. So we're very, very concerned about our downside, not so much concerned about necessarily our upside. And so we really wanted, you know, to focus on an asset class that, that had capital preservation, self-storage was the, the standout um, out, of, out of all the other asset classes. So we looked, we looked at things like multifamily and industrial and things like that, but self-storage was really just the thing that stood far, far away from all the other asset classes. Yeah, and I love that you brought that up because I think as a pass as me being a passive investor, the idea of capital preservation. Some people think, oh, you should be focused on returns, but really you should be focused on focused on capital preservation, right? So I think that's one of the biggest things. And I'm not sure you actually hear that enough, or at least I don't. So I appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> so I do I do want to talk about you know you mentioned the supply coming along uh, online with self storage, and really occupancy only grew with that as well, which might be counterintuitive to some people, right? You know, oh, there might be an oversupply, all this kind of stuff. So I want to dive into it a little bit. Um, the key drivers. What are some of the key drivers why self storage has done so well over, let's say, those five, 10 years? Yeah. So, you know, people always say this is an American thing and, and you know, we just have too much stuff and, you know, and that's never going to go away. And then you get some people that say, well, you know, people are becoming more uh, experience driven and, you know, the millennials are, are getting rid of their things and, and people aren't as beholden and we're not, you know, we're not socking away as much stuff. Or my grandma, you know, was really concerned about, you know, their, their belongings and, and holding on to memories and you know this new generation it's all digital memories and this is self-storage is just going to be this thing that eventually just dies and it's hilarious how untrue that is because <laughs> self-storage is not a place i mean it is a place where people put their their stuff and people tend to have too much stuff but it's life events that drive it you know and that's i think really what is commonly overlooked is that people are using it as a tool they're not using it as a place necessarily to stock all their stuff so for example i, I think self-storage is ridiculous i think it's a very dumb thing you know and i'm like i don't understand i got into i got into this thing and i'm like this is stupid like if i don't need something or if i haven't used it in six months i get rid of it and with all the facebook groups out there that you can get rid of stuff on you know why, why would you ever need self-storage well guess what i had a life event i had two kids and so now i have a family we have a growing family um, and we have an expanding need uh, for moving. So I had to move from a small townhouse uh, in Seattle and bought my new house. And when I did that, guess what I did? My real estate agent said, hey, you got to move everything out of here and stage your house so you can get the most bang for your buck. Where did I put my stuff? I put it in self-storage. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it was in there longer than I thought because it took a little longer to sell my house and Took a little longer to get my my act together to get the things out of self storage, and so I used self storage to move because I had a life event. And then some time passed, you know, three years went by, and I got my my house, and we realized, you know, this is a great house, but you know what? It would really be nice if we could make an extra room and, and expand the house, right? <laughs> and then when that happened, what happens when you do a home renovation? Yep, mission creep, right? <laughs> so now I was like. Well, if we're going to do this, we might as well gut the basement. We might as well do this. We might as well do that. We're, you know, this is going to be the one time we're going to disrupt everything. We might as well disrupt as much as we can. So, where did all my stuff go in my basement? Into self storage. storage. And of course, what happens is you say, oh, you know, that's only going to be in there for a couple of months and this and that. And, you know, home renovations, you know, always go longer. So, a year later, I still have my stuff in self storage. And, and again, um, it was a life event and it, that's why we used it. And I'll give one more story about it, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, as an airline pilot, I was I was flying up until about COVID. 
and um, I was flying a you know 737 900 down to Florida, um, and COVID had just started. I mean, as far as like the state shutting down and airports emptying out, it was probably right around the March timeframe. And I get on, the, I'm, I'm preparing for the flight, and it's a you know 200 plus seat air, aircraft that we're flying, um, about two about 200 seats, I should say, just a list, little under 200 seats. And there's one person on the flight, one person. It's like, wow. and the airports are empty. And so I go to the one person, I say, hey, I have got to ask you, miss, like, why, like, there's nobody in this airport. Where could you possibly be going right now? <laughs> and um, and she said, well, my mother just passed away and I have to go down to her home in Florida to put her stuff in the self-storage. Wow. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, this is, this is not a too much stuff thing. It's a life event thing. And so when America has all this disruption, it is a, 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 a place where people are going to put their stuff. And when we saw people lose, you know, people in COVID, for example, they had all this, they, nobody could go to gyms anymore. Everybody was working mm. from home. Guess what? All of a sudden you had to get rid of stuff and you had to put it into self storage uh, so that you could free up your space. You know, as we say it, free up storage, you know, make space for life. And it's a life event thing. And so when you have more disruption and more changes in the economy like that, the, de the demand for self-storage goes up. And I think that's why I'm so bullish on it is because, yeah, it does well during good times, but it does outstanding during bad times. Yeah, and man, I love those stories because I got to be honest with you, the same exact thing happened to me. <laughs> I had a life event and I put myself in storage and it sat there for three years, man. I'm not even joking. I mean, it's 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 been there this whole time and it's one of those things. It's very helpful, right? But I'm kind of the same philosophy as in, hey, I don't need this stuff. Let me just get rid of it. No, but that self-storage was super convenient because I needed it immediately, right? And so uh, uh, super convenient. Yeah, and one and one thing that I think people might go to next is they say, well, why isn't this as um, prevalent in other countries or other parts of the world? Why is this truly just kind of an American thing? And it's important to understand the history, right? So, self storage started in Texas about in the 1970s, and it started with people who had excess land. They put up some sheds, and they let they leased out the sheds because it was just just dead land. It was kind of sure. a land banking play, right? And it filled up, and they started making income. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this is neat. Like I can just throw these sheds up on this land I don't really need and then people will rent it. And it was this really unsophisticated uh, part of commercial real estate. And over time, people started building it and building it. And then they got more sophisticated. They started building multi-story, climate controlled, temperature controlled. And the next thing, it all of a sudden it was this thing in the United States that was kind of started here. And it's kind of like cell phones, I think in a lot of ways where at first people don't have um, a need, right? They don't be like, oh, why do I need a cell phone? I have a landline. I don't need a cell phone. We all remember those holdouts, right? Those people who were like, I don't need, I don't need this. I don't need this. And then over time, they're like, okay, now I have an iPhone with all the bells and whistles on it. Um, and I joke, I think even my dad was kind of probably the last holdout, you know, where he had the old flip phone, and I think he just finally switched over. Um, but that, that's I, I feel like self storage. Now, when you look across the world, land prices are probably just prohibitively too expensive right. to do something like that. And so it grew in the United States. And now everybody knows that there's a self-storage in their community. In fact, there's more self-storage in the United States than all fast food chains combined. Wow. So, you know, if you think and you think about it, like I was just out um, on the east side of Washington this weekend and I was thinking about that stat as I was going by three self-storage facilities. There wasn't a single fast food chain in sight but there was self storage facilities. And you, when you start thinking about it and you, and you notice that you're like, wow, these things are everywhere. 
And so when you have this life event, you know one's going to exist in your community. More than you're going to see at McDonald's, you're going to have a self-storage. And so I think people just knowing that that tool and that resource is available even furthers the demand for it and justifies putting them in every single community. Absolutely. I, I love the way you put that because you're absolutely right. I, you know, I'll drive, usually I'm driving long distances for my job, right? I'll drive, you know, 10, 12 hours and I can't tell you, cause I've noticed since I was, you know, started investing in real estate, I can't tell you how many self-storage facilities that I see. Right. And, you know, to me, it's like, oh, okay. The demand is still there. Right. I mean, they're popping up. Right. But it's like, people are using these. I love to see it. So I, I love that you brought that up, man. So, you know, yeah. a little bit earlier, you kind of mentioned, you know, the volatility in, in the market, you know, we had COVID, right. And now we're kind of in this, you know, after COVID, we had this huge wave of liquidity, right. That kind of hit the market. And so investors were going crazy, people going crazy, all that good stuff. But now we're in kind of the other spectrum of that, you know, rising inflation, rising interest rate environment, you know, with that in mind, all that we've talked about so far is now a good time to be investing in self-storage. And if so, why is that? Maybe. So <laughs> perfect. Depends on how you buy, depends on how you buy it right now. It's sure. really important. Um, I'll be, you know, per perfectly transparent with with where we are today, October seventeenth or whenever this airs of twenty twenty two. We're not buying much. We're 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 really slamming the brakes. Um, and the reason why is, um, I, I think a couple couple of things. The the debt markets are on fire. Um, you know, there there it's really hard to get good long term fixed interest rate debt right now um, on most self storage facilities. And so when you look at your underlying financials, you know, we only have one floating rate in our entire portfolio and it keeps me up at night, right? right. Not necessarily because of the um, the deal itself, but because I just don't want any floating interest rates. And I think yes. a lot of investors are getting floating interest rates and I think it's, they're playing with fire a little bit. So when I say it depends, I just, I, I would say it depends on how the facility is financed. I, I would say, you know, the best hedge against inflation or the best hedge on managing risk is long-term fixed interest rate debt. And that's the only thing that we're willing to take on right now. And it's getting more and more difficult because banks are basically saying, hey, I don't want the risk of interest rates going up. We know interest rates are going up in November, another 75 basis points. They're gonna go up again another half, uh, 50 basis points in December. And we know they're gonna go up another quarter basis points uh, or 25 basis points in January. That's effectively, uh, we're looking at another 150 basis point or 1.5% increase in the federal funds rate by the, by the end of the year, basically. Right. So, right. Um, and so if you're buying something with a floating interest rate, let's say it's at prime, you're looking at 8% by the end of the year. And so you're going to either have, so, so when you're getting a bank loan, you're going to have to look at it and say, all right, well, the interest rate's so much higher that the DSCR has, you know, the, the revenue, the income has to be so much stronger to support that higher interest rate. So if you're buying a floating interest rate and you're not assuming an 8% in your underwriting, I think you're playing with fire. Now, if you find a deal that works at 8% interest rate, I think that's okay. Sure. Um, but I, but I do think that we're looking at 8% rates. Um, so I think there's two ways to win right now, two primarily uh, uh, ways to win. And that's one seller financing. You have to have seller financing, some kind of carry back or some kind of um, fixed interest rate for a period of time, maybe three to five years. I think that would be um, a safe bet on, on things that have the fundamentals, right? Like you're assuming, you know, modest rent growth and things like that. And the other way is to buy uh, self storage properties with no debt. 
and just um, wait. You know, I always say like date date the interest rate, marry the property. You know, wait wait a year and then wait for your refinance. Right. So I think you just have to be careful right now on what you purchase. But here's the thing. Here's the silver lining. NOI is going to continue to grow in self storage. Revenue is going to continue to grow in self storage. And don't take it from me. Take it from the big players in the space. You look at um, the. There's an article on our on our website. You can access that. We talk. We we report the REIT data every quarter. And when you look at the quarter two results from the REITs, the best was extra space, 18% year over year NOI growth, and the worst was CubeSmart at 14.2%, uh, trailing 12 growth. That's incredible. And they're predicting double digit increases in their revenue. And we've we've seen that in our portfolio for the year so far. So I, while interest rates are ticking up and that may increase cap rates, we haven't seen it yet, but, we, but when cap rates go up, interest rates go up, generally they follow each other, but we see increasing NOI in self storage. So fundamentals are still there. It just depends on what underlying debt you have on the property to generate yield. And that's what's really slowing down buying activity across the space right now because of that because of those factors at play so if you can find a great deal that's seller financed you can probably make hay you can probably have a really good opportunity or if you're planning to buy something cash which is the two strategies that we're going to deploy over the next six months awesome and you know i really appreciate you going to that level of detail because i think for most real estate investors uh, especially if they're new the one thing to understand is where most deals invest or real estate investments go wrong is on the debt side right and so yeah. having that in mind with what you're talking about understanding the debt markets right now is super important if you're looking to you know enter uh, the real estate investing space so but from a passive investor standpoint you know, what, what I like to do is say, Hey, Ryan's over Ryan and Spartan over here. They got this under control. Like, you know, they're looking at the debt markets. They understand the debt pieces. They understand uh, the pros and cons of where we're at right now and how to uh, navigate this environment. Right. So uh, for the, for the listeners out there who might not be familiar with Spartan, can you kind of give us uh, just a general overview of your guys' business plan and what that looks like in terms of just overall, not just the debt piece, but how you guys execute uh, your business plan in general? Yeah, so we, we're a vertically integrated company, and I think it's important to understand um, what value that your operator is, is playing. And so we do the whole thing. We find the project, we f uh, fund the project with investor capital, with LPs, and then we finish the project or we operate it. So that's kind of the 3F model. So we do everything. So we have a VP of capital markets. So when you're talking about debt, we have two people who are dedicated. That's all they do is look at the, the, the debt markets and work with our lenders internally to Spartan. They use external brokers as well sometimes, but we have two people that are focused on it primarily at Spartan so that we can get the best debt on the portfolio. We also have an acquisitions team of five people that are basically scouring the markets and making or you know, looking, turning over every rock, looking at every deal. They probably underwrite about 1,300 deals a year to find the best self-storage facilities to meet our demand. And then we have our own internal property operations company uh, that does all of the management at all of the properties. So we look at, we oversee the entire portfolio directly. I think that's a good risk mitigation strategy. And then we also do the construction. So we have our own in-house construction team. We have about 12 people internally that are doing all the initial improvements at the properties, cameras, asphalt, paint, roofs, signage, et cetera. And then they also do the expansion or building of the additional units, or if we do ground up, um, we'll do it as well. But what we do, what is our bread and butter? What are you gonna see the most from us? Is a mom and pop operated self-storage business that's been mom and pop owned for the last 30 years. 
that property's been full, we buy it and we bring the rents up to where the market is charging and drive a ton of value through that. We'll fix up the property a little bit and then we'll also add on additional units, thereby increasing NOI and increasing facility value and providing more cash flow to our investors. So that's what we do. That's our that's our bread and butter is basically buying existing mom and pop properties and then operating them a lot better and then using leveraging our our team uh, to do those things that I uh, mentioned about property ops, construction, finance and acquisitions. So. Yeah, I got to be honest with you, Ryan. So, you know, as I got into passive investing, I, you know, I dabbled in multifamily for a while. And then we, I was like, I know I want to get a self-storage because I did my research, all that good stuff. And luckily we found you guys. And, you know, ever since then, I was like, this is how it's supposed to be operated. At least in my eyes as a passive investor, right? You guys are buttoned up. You have the processes, you have the teams built, right? And not only that, but you're focused and you know what type of properties you're going after and what you're going to do to them, you know, um, basically where they're at, or where they're located, what the properties look like, what you're going to do to them, if you're going to do new construction, and then how to drive these uh, other income uh, generating pieces to it, which is really attractive for me as a passive investor. It's like, oh, these guys are buttoned up. Absolutely <laughs> love that. So with, with the passive investors still in mind, man. So we have a lot of people who, who invest in multifamily as passive investors. I think it's just pretty intuitive how that works, right? Um, so I kind of want to take it from a passive investor's mindset and look at a, a self-storage deal. Say say uh, somebody who's listening to the show right now, they're a passive investor, they've done multifamily, but they haven't done self-storage yet. Uh, they know how to evaluate a multifamily deal. What are some key things they should be looking for when evaluating, say, one of your deals or any self-storage passive investments? Three things on the underwriting side. Um, and this, this can apply to a lot of different projects. And you'll find that underwriting is very similar. Financial projections are very similar. Due diligence the experience of the operator, very, very applicable here. And the returns in self-storage, depending on the risk you're taking, should be very similar to multifamily. For example, if you're building ground up multifamily, I'm expecting great returns, right? Yeah. I'm putting up a lot of risk. I'm expecting great returns as an LP. If you're buying a beautiful class A multi-story self-storage uh, in downtown, you know, next to everywhere, and it's possible to build a new one, I'm expecting lower returns and I'm yeah. expecting lower risk, right? So it's and it's everything in the middle then, right? Where you're buying kind of a fixer upper, you know, you expect kind of a value add risk profile. So I would say that doesn't change. That doesn't change. Um, but the, as far as three things that I would look for in financial underwriting for self-storage, I'd look at revenue growth year over year. So if you look at a PL and it gives you the years one through five, I would look at how much income does the operator intend to increase every year? If it's more than 6% every single year, I'd ask why. It might not be a deal, deal killer, but I might say, okay, the revenue is going up by more than 6% per year. Why, how is the operator getting to that? And you know, from the first year to the second year, it might be because they're coming in and they're gonna jack the rents because they're so far below market. Okay, that makes sense. But after that, it, it, I would really raise an eyebrow into anything over 6% because they're predicting market growth at that point, and it's really hard to predict that. And just to give you a, a sense, we usually project about five to seven percent for the whole hold period on market rate rent growth. So I would really want to kind of dig in to see where they're, and I'd want to see a market demand study that justifies the rents that they're projecting the uh, facilities to go to. So I want to see that they've knocked on every competitor door. I want to see that they understand like kind facilities and how they've compared market rate rents to that um, to get to their justifications in those rent bumps. The second thing I look at is property taxes, especially in the state of tax in the state of Texas, 
Um, I would want to see property tax as an expense get doubled um, over the course of a five-year hold. If I don't see that, then I don't, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really buying what you're trying to sell. I want to see property taxes double. And then the other thing I'd like to see is I want to see your insurance, your property insurance expense go up significantly, perhaps even as much as 50 to 75% over the course of the hold. Because the reality is, if you believe in global warming or not, it doesn't really matter. The insurance companies are having more events and they're increasing their premiums as a result. So I would want to see those three things. And those three things would boil it down into your expense to gross income ratio. So, you know, that is, you know, you take your revenue minus your expenses, and then you're going to have a percentage, right, of your, your EGI or expense to income, uh, expense to gross income ratio. Um, and I would want to see that be in the 40% when you buy it. Um, that's at, for conservatism. And then I would want to see that, I could see that going down to the low 30s. If you're in the 20s, I would really wonder how you're getting that. Um, are you, are you, um, do you have proprietary technology? Um, are you, is there something that you're doing that the industry doesn't have access to? Um, you know, have you, have you, uh, what in the portfolio do you have right now that's operating at that EGI, that expense to gross income of in 20% in the 20s? I would be suspicious that you could operate at that efficiently, especially if it's the first one you're buying. Um, if it's the first one you're buying, I want to see that closer to 40%. Uh, and so that would kind of be my sniff test when I'm looking at uh, underwriting for due diligence. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're talking getting down to 20%, like how conservative, even if you could achieve that or you, you've you done it in the past, right? How conservative are you actually being in your underwriting when you're presenting it to passive investors, right? Like, I don't want to see that as a passive investor. I need to see a little more space there, right? To be comfortable with yeah. the deal. So I, I appreciate you uh, going to that. One more thing, cap rates, because mm, <laughs> I think that's yeah. a big, big deal right now. It's always sure. been a big deal to us, but I think it's especially magnifying glasses out on cap rates. Right now, you know, we I, I would want to know a trailing three cap rate going in. So if you took, you know, all the revenue, all expenses and sort of averaged what you're paying for the last three months, um, I would want to see that T3 cap rate going in, what that number is or, or a T12, ideally, kind of the average cap rate of actuals going in. And then I would want to see what your exit cap rate, is, your assumed exit cap rate is. If I'm not seeing that go up by 30 to 50 basis points over a five year hold, uh, probably not going to do the deal um, because I would I would want to know that you have not. Um, I, I want to know that your cap rates are assumed to be going up because nobody has a crystal ball um, and nobody can predict where cap rates are going necessarily. But I think a good safe thing to be would just to show cap rates going up over the whole period so that you can't just get away with uh, marketing great returns because you just dialed down the cap rate, you know, you know, 50 basis points or hundred basis points at the end. Right. So I'd want to see that. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, a lot of our deals, you know, we, we were so conservative, um, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to do really well on the backside because we assumed like a 6.9 or even a 7% <laughs> cap rate on some of the exits, you know, cause you just didn't know, you know, the time. Right. So, so I'd want to see an increasing cap rate. I would just ask your investors like, Hey, um, you know, how much has the cap rate is changing from year one to year five? And I'd want to see that go up, you know, like I said, 30 to 50, at least ideally a full uh, 100 basis points. 
Yeah, those are some great tips and great metrics. And I know that if the listener, whoever's listening to the show right now needs to be taking notes or at least rewind it and check this <laughs> out, right? Because this is this is gold right here. I know if you're a passive investor, these are the type of things you want to dive into. You don't necessarily need to be a professional underwriter to invest in these deals, right? But you need to be able to recognize when something's something's going awry here, right? So I appreciate you going to that level of detail. Ryan, I feel like I could sit here and talk about you know self-storage <laughs> and diving into it all day, but I want to be respectful of your time. So before we get out of here, tell the listeners how they can find out about, uh, more about you, Spartan, and anything else you have going on. Yeah, you can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, Ryan Gibson One, I think, is my link. But um, you can check us out on our website, Spartan-Investors.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter that way. We actually send out weekly uh, rundowns on the self storage industry, what's happening with the market. Uh, if you don't want to invest, that's fine. We have tons and tons of blogs on that. And, uh, and then my email is Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at Spartan-Investors.com. Absolutely. We're going to make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes. And I and just want to say, I can attest to the great content you guys put out. Obviously, you know, we've invested in some of your deals. I'm on your newsletter and all that good stuff. You guys put out an amazing amount of content and you guys are just doing a fantastic job and looking, forward to, getting, looking forward to getting into more deals with you. But uh, Ryan, this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Danny. Hey, real quick before we get out of here, if you haven't checked out our Passive Investors Handbook, I would definitely suggest that you start there. This is a great primer for those looking to jump into passive real estate investing. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. It's 15 pages and takes about 20 minutes to get through. And you can find it on our website or just go to upstreaminvestor.com forward slash handbook. So go check that out and enjoy.